If you have your bulletin and you look in the order of service next to the song that the choir just sang, do you see someone's name there? Reed did that song. So I just want to make you aware because he's never going to brag on himself, so I want to brag on him. That's a beautiful song. All I do is just tell you what's already in the text. I don't create anything original. So he's the real talented person on staff. But this morning, we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. And the passage that was just read focuses very heavily on light and darkness. Now, this is not a theme that's unique to the book of Ephesians. We find this symbolic theme of light and darkness throughout the pages of Scripture. I've told you before that I'm afraid of the dark. It's true. So if I'm in a room pitch black with, you know, not being able to see my hand in front of my face, I'm going to start swinging. I do not want to be in the dark. On the flip side, as an amateur gardener, I have learned the importance of what plants need what amount of light in order to grow. We've told you before about our pomegranate tree that we planted in New Orleans that was a complete disaster. It didn't work. We planted blueberry bushes in our backyard here. Complete disaster. Didn't work. So I pretty much don't garden anymore. I've given up on that. But I have learned throughout my failures that some plants need different amount of light. Some need a lot. Some need a little. Some need a middle amount of light. And so this theme of light and darkness that we're talking about today is not physical light and darkness, as we often think of it, but rather spiritual light and darkness. This is the theme that Paul is talking about today. I want you to know a couple of things about these two words that you find in this passage. The word in the Greek that is used for light here is used a total of 73 times in the New Testament. 13 times by Paul himself, five times in the book of Ephesians. The word that Paul uses for darkness here is used 31 times in the New Testament, 11 times by Paul, and three times in the book of Ephesians. When you think of darkness in Scripture, it's often associated with evil, wickedness, or sin. When you think of light in the New Testament, it's often associated with, oh, I've lost my spot. Where is it? Happiness, victory, and glory, hope. Those are often how we consider light when we think of it in light of the New Testament. Now, the greatest example of this biblically when we think of light is the story that we find in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses is on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord and the text tells us when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. This is communicating to us that God is light. When Moses is in the presence of the Lord and he comes down back to the people of Israel, they see the glow on his face. So remember that light is associated with glory, victory, happiness, and hope. And darkness is evil, sin, wickedness. Keep those attributes in mind as we work our way through the passage today. 
So we're going to learn three things from this passage. Number one, walk in the light. Number two, expose the darkness. And number three, trust in the light of Christ. Number one, walk in the light. Number two, expose the darkness. Number three, walk, trust, excuse me, in the light of Christ. Number one, walk in the light. Look at verse seven. You should be an expert on this word now. Therefore, what does that mean? Paul is referring back once again to what he previously said last week in verses one through six. The therefore refers to all of what he said about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Now, Paul is teaching these Christians to have no association with those types of behaviors. Now, we need to stop for a minute and not overread what Paul is teaching here. Paul is not teaching that we should sell our house, quit our job, and move to the desert and become a monk. So that way we are prevented from ever having to interact with anyone who might be associated with these types of sins that he talks about in verses 1 through 6. That is not what Paul is teaching. How could he teach that based on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 28 when he says, go and make disciples? That implies that you have interactions, you have relationships with lost people. So the old phrase is, we want to be in the world but not of the world, right? So we have to have relationships with lost people in order that they will hear the gospel, repent of their sin, and come to faith in Christ. So Paul is not teaching that we should just insulate ourselves with only Christians and only gather in our holy huddles and never have any relationships with people that are lost. But there is a warning here. Paul says not to partner with these people. In other words, we have to be careful that in the midst of engaging with a lost world, creating relationships with them, loving them, that we still remember that God calls us to holiness. So we don't compromise our biblical views on holiness in order to reach lost people. We stay completely committed to Christ. We stay completely committed to our convictions but in the process, we love them, we show them compassion, we communicate the truth of the gospel, and we call them to repentance. Now, why does Paul say Christians should not partner with them in this way? Because of verse 8. Look in the text. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul says something similar to this in his great chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have the Spirit of Christ residing in you. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we walk according to the Spirit. If you're in Christ, you do not walk according to the flesh. You walk according to the Spirit. But as you do that, you love lost people. You engage with lost people. You communicate to them the truth of the gospel. 
Paul tells the Ephesian Christians here, walk as children of light. And he says, you walk in this light because you have experienced the light of Christ. And the fruit of that light is three attributes that he mentions in the text. What is good, what is right, and what is true. The word for good here, or in some of your translations, perhaps goodness, this means the goodness or generosity of the Lord. So the fruit of that goodness is showing goodness and generosity to others. Then we have what is right or righteousness. All believers in Christ have the imputed righteousness of Jesus in us. We are not made righteous on our own. When we profess faith in Christ, we repent of our sins, we believe in the gospel. In that act, we are justified. And in that act of justification, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. So what do we do now that we have that righteousness? We exhibit that righteousness on behalf of others. And then the third attribute is truth, or that what is true. As Christians, we should be characterized as truthful people because God himself is true. You're picking up on this image of God idea in this passage. We talk about the image of God regularly. That is the idea that we have been created in his image and we are to reflect who God is to the world. So we have received the goodness of God. We are to reflect that goodness back out into the community. We have received the righteousness of God. We reflect that righteousness out to the lost world. We have received the truth of who God is and we speak truth into the world. We reflect who God is to the world through those attributes that Paul mentions here. Now, in your Bible, if you have the ESV or the extra special version, verse 9 is in parentheses. So it's almost like what you're reading in verse 9 is an aside. So it really should read in the text, if you take out verse 8 or verse 9, excuse me, you have to connect verses 8 with verse 10. So it would read like this. For at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 10 might be a little confusing. What do we need to discern about pleasing the Lord? Don't we have his word? Doesn't he give us everything that we need in order to please him? Well, yes and no. Let me explain. There are different aspects of God's will. For instance, if you read any systematic theology textbook, you can get deep into the weeds on this, but I just want to give you a brief overview. There is what is known as God's revealed will, and then there are also aspects of God's will that are secretive. Let me explain. God's revealed will is everything in this book. He is communicated from Genesis to Revelation. Everything that he wants to reveal to us. That does not imply that he in any way has to reveal everything in his grand plan to us. He doesn't have to do that. But in terms of what it takes to be made right with God, what it takes to be justified before God, he has revealed all of that in his word. So for instance, 
God revealed in his word in the Ten Commandments that we are not to murder, that we are not to commit adultery, that we are not to worship any other gods before him. And so many other commandments and laws throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, Jesus has revealed to us that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. When we read Paul, Paul has revealed to us about the whole plan of salvation and how it works and how Jesus lived a perfect life, was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And any who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans chapter 10 tells us. So we have God's revealed will in Scripture. But we don't know everything about God's entire plan of how everything will come to fruition in this life. The greatest example of this, I think, from Scripture is Genesis chapter 50. This is the story of when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he tells his brothers, after he tells them, I'm Joseph, I'm the one you threw into the pit and sold into slavery. Joseph tells his brothers that you meant all of this for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, why is this God's secretive will? Because God never told Joseph Back at the beginning of the Joseph narrative in Genesis 37, God never told Joseph, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be thrown into a pit. You're going to be sold into slavery. You're going to be accused of cheating with Potiphar's wife. You're going to be thrown into prison. You're going to become second in command in all of Egypt. And then ultimately, you are going to deliver your family, the Israelites, out of basically famine and brought into Egypt to survive. Does God reveal any of those things to Joseph in the narrative? No, he doesn't. That's an example of God's secretive will. There are things that will happen to us in our life that we might never know about in this life. We can't understand the why behind it. Even in that passage, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph doesn't admit that he knew that all this was going to happen, but he trusted in faith. In that great verse of Genesis 50, verse 20, when he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It was in that moment that Joseph realized that this plan that he was not privy to, God ultimately used it for his glory. So we have the revealed will of God and the secret will of God. So that's why Paul can say right here that there are times in our life when we have to discern what is the pleasing will of the Lord. Discern means that we have to think about it. We have to pray about it. We have to seek counsel about it because there's not an explicit answer to every single situation that we will endure in life. So what happens in those moments when Paul tells us here that we have to discern what is pleasing to the Lord? What are we supposed to do? Well, here's what we do. Number one, you read God's word. You do your best to read God's word. Number two, you surround yourself by Christian brothers and sisters that can help you discern what it is you think the Lord is leading you to do, that can pray with you, that can encourage you, that can help you try to figure out what it is that's going on in your life. And then number three, you pray and you ask God for wisdom. So even in those moments where God's will is not perfectly revealed to you, 
we still want to lean heavily into God's word. We want to surround ourselves by brothers and sisters that are doing the same. And then obviously we want to pray for God to give us wisdom. We have a whole book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, which is almost nothing but principles that we are to use for helping us get through this life. There are times when we exercise biblical wisdom to the best of our ability, knowing that God hasn't explicitly told us that this is what we're supposed to do. So in those moments, we do the same things that we always do. We lean on the word of God. We lean on our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we go to him in prayer, and we plead for his wisdom. That's what we do when we're trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord when it's not explicitly laid out for us in Scripture. So number one, we are to walk in the light. Number two, we are to expose the darkness. If you're in Christ today, not only are you supposed to not take part in the unfruitful works of unrighteousness like we talked about last week, but Frank Thielman, who's a commentator, he writes this in his commentary on this passage. If darkness serves as a cloak for the deception, then light can expose it. Paul says in verse 12 that the things or the things that those people do that are in darkness, they're so bad that we shouldn't even speak of them. This is what Paul says here. That they're ashamed of the things that they do in darkness. They're so bad that we should not even speak of them. The focus in this passage is not on the people who engage in these dark and wicked and evil acts, but it's the actions themselves. Now, we're not given in this particular text what these acts of darkness, what these acts of unrighteousness were, but in the context of Ephesians, we can just flip through the letter and regularly see the things that Paul talks about in this book. The passage we talked about last week, for instance, in verses 1 through 6, he's talking about sexual morality. He's talking about impurity, covetousness. These are the unfruitful works of darkness, most likely, that Paul is referring to here. But he's also referring to any sins that would have been popular in the Greco-Roman context in which he's writing. There are some signs that are so, excuse me, not signs. There are sins sometimes in our lives that are so shameful, we sneak in the darkness to commit them. Think about it for a moment. If you're committing adultery, you're probably not walking down the street holding the hand of your mistress for all to see. No, you're doing it in secret. If a brother or sister is struggling with pornography, they're probably not looking at it at the dinner table with their family. They're doing it in secret. They're trying to hide it. Even lost people who don't have a biblical understanding of sin the same way they, that we do, they would even admit that there are certain sins that they don't want other people to know that they're committing. There are certain sins that are shameful and cause people to do it in darkness because they don't want anybody else to know that they're engaged in that behavior. But Christians are people of the light. And we should expose darkness when we see it. We should speak truth to our brothers and sisters in Christ and speak truth to lost people about sin. 
We should urge all people, including ourselves, those that are in Christ, to repent of our sin and follow Christ. If you're a Christian here today, take your sin seriously. Regularly confess it and repent of it. Now, how do we know when true repentance has occurred? This just gives me an excuse to mention one of my favorite books that I mention all the time, The Doctrine of Repentance, by that great Puritan writer, Thomas Watson. He wrote this book that's about 80 pages, and he just unpacks everything about repentance. And here's what he says in his book about when true repentance has occurred. This book was written, by the way, in 1668, so you have to consider the language. But here's what he says. He mentions six ingredients of true repentance. Number one, the sight of sin. Number two, sorrow for sin. Number three, confession of sin. Number four, shame of sin. Number five, hatred for sin. And then number six, turning from sin. So let's unpack these six ingredients that we can use kind of as a litmus test to determine whether or not true repentance has occurred. Number one, sight for sin. That basically means, are you aware that you're sinning? When you commit a particular behavior, are you sensitive enough in the spirit to realize that what you're doing is sin? That's number one. Are you aware of it? Number two, do you have sorrow for it? Do you realize what our sin does to our fellowship with the Lord? It hinders our fellowship. Do we have sorrow over that? Number three, do we then confess that sin before the Lord and plead for his forgiveness, trusting that by the finished work of Christ in the cross, every time we confess it, God forgives every single time. So number three, we confess it. Number four, are we ashamed of it? We should be. Because our sin affects our relationship with the Lord. It should be something that we're not proud of. Number five, do we hate it? Do we hate the sins that we commit? Not out of a, an anger, but more out of a desire to please our Lord. We hate sin so much because we know it hinders our relationship with God. And then in number six, ultimately, do we turn from it? Do we stop doing it? Now, we realize that this term of repentance doesn't mean that one time we commit a sin and for the rest of our lives, we'll never commit it again. That's, that's not what repentance means. But it means that we strive through the power of the Spirit to overcome the sins that so easily entangle us. Watson says this in his book, and this particular quote is for all of those in this room that are Christians. Listen closely to what he says. The sin committed by a Christian is worse than the same sin committed by the heathen. Now remember when it's written, okay? We don't use heathen anymore, but just stay with the context. Because the Christian sins against clearer conviction, which is like weight put into the scale, which makes it weigh heavier. So if you're in Christ today, God has revealed through his word what sin is and how we are to respond to it. But a lost person does not have the same understanding biblically of what sin is. It doesn't mean that their sin is excused. 
It just means that they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the spirit residing in them. So in some ways, when we as Christians sin, as Watson says, it is worse than the same sin committed by someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Why is that? Because we know what our sin means, whereas many of them do not. But if you're not a Christian today, and you don't understand all of this talk about sin and judgment and forgiveness and repentance, I would just challenge you to examine your heart and ask, number one, do I have sin in my life? Biblically, the answer is yes, you do. And then number two, to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and believe that he was raised three days later, proving that he conquers all death and all sin. And then number three, trust, Paul says, in the light of Christ. Verse 13 reads, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Jesus is the light. Now here's what's interesting about our journey with Christ. When you're growing in your intimacy with the Lord, when you're in his word, when you're gathered with the body regularly, when you have brothers and sisters that are holding you accountable, when you're pleading before the Lord in prayer, here's what happens. Yes, your intimacy with him increases, but guess what else happens? You're also more aware of your own sinfulness. That's kind of counterintuitive. Because what we often think is, when I'm growing in holiness, when I'm growing in intimacy, I sin less. That might be true, but here's what happens. As you get closer to the light, which is Christ, he reveals more of your filth, more of your impurity. So actually, when you're growing in your intimacy with the Lord... You're growing in holiness, but as you grow in holiness, you're made more aware of your own sinfulness. That's by design. Because the closer you get to the light, the more of your darkness is revealed. That's the way God set it up to be. So as I'm reading scripture every day, as I'm going to the Lord in prayer as I'm gathering with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, I'm growing in holiness, but I'm also made more aware of how I fall short of God's perfection and of God's holiness. And in those moments when I'm made more aware of my filth and my dirt and my uncleanliness and my sin, guess what? I have to depend more on Jesus's righteousness in my life. Do you see how it all comes together? As you grow in Christ, you become more sensitive to sin. When you become more sensitive to sin, you're made more aware of your own sin. And when you're made more aware of your own sin, guess what you have to do? You have to confess it more. And you have to repent of it more. So don't let the world deceive you or even brothers and sisters in Christ who might be ill-informed, that as you grow in Christ, it automatically means that you will sin less. It might, it might not, but it will do one thing. It will make you more aware of your sinful nature. We have this unfortunate idea in churches 
that somehow confessing sin and repenting sin, it's like something that we should be ashamed of or embarrassed of. Now, I'm not giving you a green light to just go out and sin like crazy. That's not what I mean. But if you're a follower of Christ, we need to remember that God delights to hear from his children. So when we have sin, when we have things that we're ashamed of, when we have things that we know we need to confess, we need to view confession of sin and repentance of sin as an act of worship. That's what it is. We get to bring the things that we're not proud of, the things that we are ashamed of, we get to bring those before God. And if we're in Christ, we know that he forgives us every single time. So through this act of confession and repentance, it is an act of worship before the Lord because we get to experience anew every single time we confess the righteousness of Christ in us. Let's stop viewing confession of sin. Let's stop viewing repentance of sin as something that's disgraceful because it is an act of worship before the Lord. In case you didn't know this, I already know you're a sinner. You already know I'm a sinner. So there's no secrets here. There's no surprises. We're all sinners. Now that doesn't mean we're going to start you know, regularly having 100 people come up every Sunday and go through their list of confession. We're not going to do that. So don't stress out. I'm not going to start asking you to come up and read your dirty laundry to the whole congregation. But I do want you to know that you need the body of Christ. You need some people around you who you can confess into and they can confess back to you because that's part of being the body of Christ. Confessing our sin, not only to the Lord, but to one another, as James tells us. We should be willing and able to confess our sin to brothers and sisters when, in fact, the Lord leads us to do so. It is biblical. We need each other to navigate this life. And when we do not bring sin into the light, it not only hurts us individually, but hear me, it hurts the entire body. Your Christian life is not just this individualized thing that does not affect the whole body. It does. So when we confess our sins as the body of Christ to one another and before the Lord, not only does it make you healthier in your relationship with the Lord, it makes the church of Jesus Christ healthier as well. And that's the goal, a healthy church. That's what we want. We want to be healthy before the Lord. Paul says... In verse 14, anything that becomes visible is light. And then we have this quotation as Paul finishes up the passage. There's this speculation here about what exactly Paul is quoting. Some people think he's quoting Isaiah 60. Some people think he's quoting a prophecy from Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Others think that it comes from some outside Jewish source that was considered really important in the church. But ultimately, Paul uses this phrase, therefore it says, if you'll notice that in your text, if you have the ESV, he introduces it by saying, therefore it says. And that's a phrase that we regularly see in the New Testament 
before Paul or James or somebody else introduces a text from the Old Testament that is considered authoritative by the church. So at the very least, we don't really know where it comes from. There's a lot of speculation. But Paul viewed this quote that he uses as authoritative within the church. And it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This reminds us of earlier in Ephesians, particularly Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, where we learn that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This language of being dead describes every single person prior to life in Christ. And we have learned that a dead person cannot raise another dead person back to life. It has to be something that happens to us, outside of us. And we also learn in Ephesians chapter 2 that God made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And we are moved from darkness to light. We are moved from death to life by the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And when Jesus shines his light in us, that removes our darkness. And we are then able to go and take the light of Christ within us and shine that light into a world that is full of darkness. During the Reformation, there were three attributes that the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, and others used to help people understand what it meant to have saving faith in Jesus. The first attribute that they talked about was the content of the gospel. This is the idea that you have to know the basic facts. You have to know that Jesus was born of a Virgin Mary, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. Those factual facts, can't think of a better word, that factual information is vital. You have to know the content of the gospel. But the content of the gospel enough will not save you. You also have to have what the reformers called affirmation of that content. So it's not just believing the facts, it's also affirming it. Saying, yes, I, I, I've heard the facts, but I also affirm those facts. That Jesus was, in fact, dead, buried, resurrected. All of those things. But even understanding the content and affirming it don't save you. You have to believe it in faith. That's the third aspect. You have to trust it. In other words, you believe it to an extent that it changes the way you live your life. There's lots of people that have the first two down. They understand the content of the gospel. They even affirm it, but they don't believe it. How do we know they don't believe it? Number one, they have no fruit that shows it. And then number two, Jesus is not the Lord of their life. They have not submitted to his leadership. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believed in Jesus and affirmed that he was alive, dead, buried, and resurrected. Demons are not Christians. So it can't just be that we understand the content and that we affirm it. Number three, we have to trust 
in it by faith alone. And that was the cry of the reformers. Most people in the Bible Belt, which is Dothan, Alabama, by the way, most people, they know the facts. They affirm it. But is Jesus truly the Lord of their life? Have they submitted to his leadership? He's not on the throne of their lives. They're not abiding in Christ, as John 15 tells us. They are not committed to his bride, the church. And if anyone is not in Christ, Paul tells us in this passage, and I repeat it, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. How it could take someone like me, dead in my sin, forever separated from God, destined for hell, and because of the finished work of Christ, by believing it in faith, I can be seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. We thank you for Paul's boldness that he teaches in this passage. So all of those that are in Christ today, would you help us to walk in the light? Would you help us to expose the darkness? Would you help us to trust in Jesus who is our light? And for any that are not in Christ today, we do exactly what that verse says, that they would awake from their sleep, that they would understand that their sin separates them from you and that Jesus is the only way they can be made right with you. Move in people's hearts today, not only here in our church, but in all the other churches in our community and all around the world right now that are gathered for corporate gatherings. Would you move in the lives of people that need salvation? We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.